Welcome to the Artist Statement. I'm David Malisarn. Today's guest is poet Craig Cotter, calling in from his home in Pasadena, California. I used to try and edit things after I wrote them. And so I was taking these poems and she'd give me comments and I'd come back and she just said, I think you're destroying your own poetry, that you are removing things because you're embarrassed about the content and what you're changing has nothing to do with strong or weak writing, good or bad writing, and you're destroying your poems. And Craig is so- the author of four collections of poetry, including The Aroma of Toast and There's Something Seriously Wrong With Me, both published by Black Tie Press. Chopsticks Numbers, published by Asada Press at Boise State University, and his most recent collection, After Lunch with Frank O'Hara, published by Chelsea Station Editions. Born in New York in 1960, Cotter studied English at Michigan State University and education at Cal State Northridge. While at Michigan, he was an editor at the Red Cedar Review. He has lived in California since 1986 and teaches poetry at Pasadena City College. Cotter has published well over 300 poems in over 200 journals from across the globe. He also has his own bio published on his website, craigcotter.com. It reads, Craig's hobbies include sailing, baseball, American arts and crafts, and package designs for outdated Beatle memorabilia, but he's very nice and you should write him a letter if you get a chance. Craig, thank you for being here today. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Tell us about that second bio. Um, it was something that was written for you by a friend and something that you've actually used frequently, right? Yeah, my first publication was in 1979. I was uh, one of the I was the poetry editor at Red Cedar Review, which was the uh, literary journal of Michigan State. Chief editor was my friend Paul Murphy, who lives 1.3 miles away from me now in Pasadena also, and his wife Anne. And uh, we, of course, wanted to publish ourselves because we'd never been published. And Paul had a rule that it was unethical, and, <laughs> and we fought him. And we wanted to be published so badly. But there was another magazine sprouted up in a, at Michigan State, and it was called Pros and Cons. And they accepted a poem from my first submission in 1979. So they asked for a contributor statement. I didn't know what one was. I had no clue. So one of the other editors in the office was Tim Schwartz, a good friend. And I said, would you write me a contributor's note? And he just there were no computers then we just had stacks of mail that went to the ceiling uh, you, they were tunnels i mean and uh we had index cards and and uh, we'd write notes and uh staple them to the poems and he just took an index card and whipped it off instantly and handed it to me and i i just used it unedited and uh i you know i have a, a straight bio now cuz some people really care about what your past was and where you published instead of it always seemed like to me, it should be just the poem. Um, doesn't matter what you did before, but uh, there's a new magazine I found. Um, I can't remember the name. I just sent them some stuff last night and they asked for, uh, they said they don't like boring bios. So I sent them the Tim Schwartz one and I still send it out maybe once every 50 times just to honor Tim the one on your website actually has some of the language crossed out and rewritten, right? I think um, something about the the package design is edited. Yeah, I was, because uh, I found it, the thing he wrote on the index card last night. And uh, yeah, he had, he'd done the cross out. So I just kept everything. He had missed some misspellings and some non-standard punctuation and capitalization. Um I could produce it more accurately. I should probably just uh, scan it and send that. So Michigan State was very influential for you as a poet. Had you written poetry before going there? I did, but I don't remember much about it. But um, when I went back to high school in Rochester, New York, I spent, I did two years in the last two years at Greece, Athena high school in Greece, New York. It's a suburb of Rochester. 
and I was saying hi to some teachers and Linda White, my English teacher said, Oh, I love that poem you wrote for your brother when you went off to college and I teach with it. I use it every year and she didn't have a copy of it anymore. And I don't have a, I didn't ask for it then. And since then I tried to get it. And so when you went to Michigan state, did you go specifically to study poetry? Did you know already that that was your interest? My uncle was a very successful accountant and I was supposed to become an accountant and go work in his business with him in Visalia, California. So I entered Michigan State as an accounting major and just hated it. And these classes were very large. You know, Michigan State had 45,000 students at the time. A big lecture hall would seat five to 800. The professors in front at a podium with a microphone and speakers up on the ceiling. And there were two TAs with uh, microphones that were runners. If you had to ask a question, they'd run up to you. And and I didn't like the subject matter and I didn't like classes that big. But one of the best things about Michigan State, and they've removed this now I hear from because the students were bitching about it for years, but they had these things called university requirements. They were graduation requirements. You had to take three classes in social science, three natural science, three American thought and literature, and three, I forget the other three, and uh, humanities. The other three were humanities. So you, they wanted you to have a general survey of the knowledge of the world. And right. it was in one of those ATL courses, American Thought and Language. Maurice Hungerville was a professor, read the bell jar, wrote a paper on it. And I started writing, and he wasn't really writing poems. It was kind of, you know, freshman literary theory. And he wrote a lot of nice comments and he pulled me aside one day and he was a great tiny little guy. He chain smoked and then you could smoke in class, you know, his fingers were yellow. And uh, he just said, you know, I think you might want to um, study writing in the English department. And why don't you go try it and take a class? Cause you're really good at it. And uh, I just randomly picked a poetry writing class that was taught by RK Miners, Roger Miners and, yeah. And I loved it. And I, I immediately changed, dropped accounting as a major and moved to an English major after that first class. And all, and also the English department was at Morrill Hall then. It was one of the original buildings from the 1855 campus made. And it was built in sandstone from a quarry in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan and just got knocked down about five years ago. Three stories, hardwood floors. There were, it was originally a girl's dorm. So there were fireplaces everywhere. And uh, secret tunnels connected all those buildings. Kids used to go down and play Dungeons and Dragons in there. But um, the classes were small. The classes were 20 to 30 students. And like one of my professors, Richard Benvenuto, he taught uh, Victorian literature. He'd cut that class in half and take us to his office. And these are beautiful big offices, tall windows. And, and he had a long rectangular table and 15 of us would sit there and discuss literature, tiny classes. And the English department was like that the rest of my career. I mean, no more, you know, huge rooms, you know, stadium seating with 800 kids in them. So just loved it. The Michigan State English department was very unique then because it had a group of artists that were faculty members and it had a group of scholars and I equally liked studying with both. So I was doing some hardcore studying of literature with these great PhDs, you know, the expertise in their area, like Evan Watkins, who's 20th century American and Bill Johnson and Roger Miners, who I who taught the poetry workshop. He also, you know, he was a poet and uh, he was ordained as a minister. He had a, a PhD in literature and um, he taught literary interpret interpretation of the King James Bible. And uh, there were just these, I love studying with scholars like that knew everything about Dickens and everything about Frank O'Hara. And, but then they had a, a writer in resident, Diane Wachowski. I mean, the poet in resident Wachowski, they had a writer in resident, the fiction writer, Sheila Roberts. They had a playwright in resident, Arthur Thanison. And Jim Cash, who wrote several movies, like Top Gun, was one of his big hits. Um, he had gone to Michigan State, and he came back just to donate his time, and he used to teach screenwriting class. So it was a 
I don't think it's unique, but I think it's less common now, a mix of scholars and artists. And I wouldn't want to be in a program that was all artists. And I wouldn't want to be in a program that was all scholars either, because, you know, I didn't want to write literary theory. I wrote a few papers and quickly started convincing professors to just say, obviously, you know, I have nothing meaningful to say about Moby Dick and I'm 19 and let's not waste each other's time. Could I just write poems and turn them in for my assignments? Or could I, if I took a Joyce class, could I just try and write like Joyce? And these, these people were very chill as they say, no, they're just do it. Go for it. Of course. Did you really have the insight to say, obviously, I do not have the capacity to understand these things? No, I didn't say I didn't understand them. them. I don't have anything to say original about them. Like I have to assess them and write a paper about them. I didn't say it in exactly that way. I have more sophisticated language now. But I knew I was too stupid to come up with anything to say about James Joyce. Even some of his very accessible stuff like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, or the Dubliners, that early group of stories. You I mean, I could, I was just trying to understand literature. And as it said, no, I learned these really moronic hacks. Like I, I could say I would look at the animal imagery in Winesburg, Ohio, or something. You know, and it was always there was just some little trick you could focus on one little thing and look at it if you really had to. But but you felt like that I was know, all BS. What having to when you did have to do these sorts of analyses. I probably learned a little looking at the animal imagery in Winesburg, Ohio, you know, or the, how animals are used or flowers or, I mean, I was moving toward, you know, now you and I are both writers. So I think you still read for enjoyment and can disappear in a book. But when I find a section that's really beautiful and fascinating, I read as a writer. Now I just, after I'm done enjoying it, I want to know how did the writer accomplish that? I want to accomplish that as a writer. What tools did he use? So yeah, the studying part and the lecture part and the discussion part of just those pure literature courses was very helpful. But you know, there were these three emphases in the English department. You could study just to be a PhD. You could study to be a teacher in public school, or you could just study for the joy of literature. And I picked that joy of literature. Well, I was actually in the English high school track, but the joy of literature track is what interested me. And there were guys there that were going to get a master's and PhD and they had to learn the theory and how to write a good paper and how to annotate it. And, and I know I was very honest with them. I am not interested in that. It's just not me. I want to be an artist. And, um, you know, all the artists were fine with that, but all the scholars, I think, they they had a deep appreciation for art. They loved it that someone wanted to try. They studied art. Their life was about under. They loved the people they studied, whether it was Dickens or Dickinson or Charles Olson or James Joyce or Hemingway or Faulkner. They loved these people. They worshipped art, and they wished they could do it. A lot of them were closet artists, or they had done it and failed, or they felt they failed. They just didn't stick with it. So they loved a young kid that was trying to be you know, the next Frank O'Hare, the next Bukowski or Wachowski or, yeah, they were very respectful of wanting to take that course. And I wasn't being disrespectful by saying it's a waste of time to have me write a theory paper, you know. Can you read one of your poems for us? Sure. Do you have a preference? Because we have pre-looked at a few. Yeah. How about Drayton Plains Nature Center? All right. The Drayton Plains Nature Center. <clears throat> you know, they have a website. They're a, they were a nonprofit. It was a fish hatchery in the, oh, probably in the 20s in Michigan. And then it was 180 acres of ponds and rivers and fields and streams. And it was protected by a nonprofit by the time I was in Michigan in the 60s and 70s as a child. It's been taken over by Waterford Township. Um, they do have a nonprofit wing, though, to try and raise money for. But it, the land has been protected and set aside. But they, they had a picture on their website today of a giant uh, snapping turtle under frozen a frozen lake, you know, swimming around under the ice. Oh, wow. That, that's where they hibernate. All right. The Drayton Plains Nature Center. I called Alex, number no longer in service. 
sent a letter to his last address, suggesting Don and Bob's. My ashes will be scattered from the bridge of the Drayton Plains Nature Center into the Clinton River. I'll mix into the river bottom and sandy bank where a soft-shelled turtle in 1969 still deposits leathery eggs. She dove into the river when she saw me, giant, 4'11", 60 pounds, 8. Those with no regrets, liars, or gods. I like the smell of old pencils in my grandmother's mahogany phone stand. In a walnut pencil box my grandfather made in 1929. Fine cabinet work at 14. I hope there's another long step at the end with you and my other soulmates. Thank you. Um, I've been trying to figure out how to ask this question without sounding really stupid, but um, memory, memories play a major role in your work and in your life from what I've seen. Uh, you seem to be someone who thinks a lot about your past experiences, not only in the sense, I, I think maybe a lot of artists will recall traumatic experiences or you know things that were particularly uh influential in their lives but you seem to just um enjoy and find satisfaction in remembering sort of the the daily life or or various things from your past do you feel like that's do you feel like you go into that more than most people do and why is that such an important uh, reservoir of material for you? Yeah, it was Flannery O'Connor said, if you have no experiences outside of childhood, but you make it out of childhood, you have enough to write on for the rest of your life. Um, but this poem, Drayton Plains Nature Center, um, it does move between the past, the present, and the future. So... And it does have all three. I mean, it starts, the speaker starts in the present, just trying to get a hold of an old fling and seeing if we can get together. And then, but then um, this memory of this as a boy scaring this turtle, you know, walked up, wanted to see it. And, and then moving into the future of thinking about, you know, where do you want your ashes or your remains when you die? And so, um, but I don't know. I don't know that past, present, or future triggers me more often than not. Um, but I think it's part of being 60 and looking back and, you know, you see what kind of things in your life catch your attention, hold your attention. You've got to think about them for many years and why do they mean something to you? And I do, one of the things I really like in that poem is that um, turtles live a long time. So when I saw that adult female turtle when I was nine, if my ashes go in there tomorrow or in 10 years when I'm 70, that turtle would have seen me and would have still seen my ashes. You know, that turtle might live 100, 200 years. Right. And I like that sense. Yeah. Part of what you get at when you do talk about the past um, is you've addressed in your work that that your memory your memory of the past might not be accurate right so there is some sense of creation so that what you're depicting as a memory is also an invention based on time and based on how how the details might have changed um from what was reality to what you're able to recall um in in your line in your poem for Alex Hanfland, uh, you you say you start with my memories are lies because I lie every day and that has affected my memory. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? And and so does does this memory become a new invention over time? There used to be this. Uh 
theory of memory that, that we were a copy machine. It was called the copy theory of memory and that every experience in life we have is pristinely recorded in our brain. And then if you just get calm enough, like in psychotherapy or through hypnosis, um, you can recall everything. Now, this has been 100% disproved by science. That does not exist. And this is why eyewitnesses to murders and horrible bloody crimes are some of the worst witnesses. Because when you're going through a horrible trauma, sometimes you don't make memories at all. You make distorted memories. People that have been severely, savagely abused might have no memories for years. There's nothing to... And if you get relaxed and your therapist is talking to you, you can sometimes get suggested memories of things that never even happened to you. So um, clearly there is no pristine recollection of my past. And so it's interesting to explore that. Why does something stick in my mind? And um, I think people have different kinds of memories. Obviously some people remember lots of details. Some people have a narrative memory. Some people have more of an imagistic visual memory. And, you know, we all do it. Like if you have this memory and there's enough people left alive, you can go ask your sister and your mother and what do they remember of it. And sometimes they say, you know, you're crazy. You're inventing that it never happened. Sometimes they have an absolute pristine memory exactly the way you do. Um, I was talking to my aunt a few years ago saying, remember your cabin at Pine Lake? It had that I was visiting and it was gray. And I said, Oh, remember when I was a kid, that dark green. And she's like, Craig, the cabin was never dark green. So I don't know what your memory was when you were seven. And then five years later, she called me and said, Jesus, we're repainting the cabin and we were scraping and it scraped down through four four layers of paint. And the fifth layer, you know, the fourth layer was that green. I had forgotten all about it. How did you remember that? So, um, yeah, there is no perfect memory that you can write about and you reproduce it. No life. Any, so it has always got to be a creation, doesn't it? I mean, do you see that you're as... using words, your memory, the poem is not right. The thoughts in your head. Right. Go ahead. Do you see them as two separate things? The reality of the past versus the thing that you write down or sure, in, in your mind, you... are they connected? Because most of the reality of my past, nobody cares about. And it is very boring. Like I remember, uh, you know, Frank O'Hare does these I do this, I do that poems where he chronicles what's happening in his life. Like the day lady died is a great poem where if it's 28 lines, the last three lines are the only ones about lady day about Billie Holiday. The rest is what he did in his life. So you get all these undergrads writing. I do this, I do that poems. and They're just horrible. And I remember in one of Diane Wachowski's workshops, she's, you know, most people's lives are just so fucking boring. If you, I don't think she said fucking, but, um, you know, if you, if you write an, I do this, I do that poem, nobody cares. Cause your life is horribly boring and everything Frank O'Hara did just seemed to be interesting. You know, the guy could not run errands without it being interesting, which is what the beginning of that poem's about. And, uh, what he's buying for a weekend with friends at, at, at the ocean. So, uh, yeah, most of my memories, most of all our memories, they mean something to me and they're totally boring to the rest of the world. And if you can, so I'll write about them because they interest me, but then can you make it into art? Can you make it into something larger, more universal that helps people understand what they're going through? And yeah, I think when I first started writing, I'd say 99% of what I wrote had to be rejected. And now after I let a, or a draft sit for five years and look at it. I bet you 70% of my drafts I can craft into a poem. Mm-hmm. Would you read for Alex Hanflan for us? Certainly. For Alex Hanflan, you know, you don't have to cut this, but I did take the last name out. <laughs> I don't know if you'd like this at this stage. For Alex. <clears throat> My memories are lies because I lie every day and that has affected my memory. Like we had this perfect love, when in reality I was dating a girl through some of it and you were jealous and I didn't know what to do with it. Then you got married on me and Rose dumped me. I have one photo of you at the front counter at Clover Pool. 
Your 6'1 spidery, 130-pound frame sat on the sand cliffs overlooking Lake Ontario. I sat in front of you. Your long arms held me. We didn't talk for hours. I was 17. You were 16 when we met at the pump shop of Clover Pool. After we'd bombed around a few weeks in my 69 Monte Carlo, gold with black vinyl top, your brother John came up to me at work. I just want you to know Alex is gay. I looked into his dark eyes and went back to stocking shelves. I watch you at Don's with the stainless steel counters and walls, eating a burger in three bites, your long fingers. Walking to my car in Pasadena tonight, Christmas 2005, not cold like Rochester. We pissed on the door of a closed Chinese restaurant, drove on the shoulders and the wrong sides of roads. You washed my hands in your pump shop, saw David Bowie in the carrier dome, threw our empty Coke bottles in the back seat. By the end of summer, the car chimed as we turned corners. I asked a guy last week if he goes to the cliffs above Hamlin Beach. He said, you can't, they're fenced off. Can you believe it, Alex? The fence and signs keep him out? If we could meet at a summer job now when we are 17 and 16. Walking the 11 p.m. streets of Pasadena, I thought that everything I've written has been a lie, sometimes clever ones, that I want to stop lying. And that's the truth. <laughs> I, I want to touch again going back to what we were just talking about does does the alex in the poem exist as a new or a created person or do you still see him as the recollection of reality well, i've been writing a lot more about family lately i've been wrote a poem about my great aunt jane and my grandmother Cotter and uh, and yeah, I think there were special aspects of them that were unique. And these are people that I loved and they loved me and Alex was one. So, you know, love relations are, that's one of the special essences of humanity. I mean, without it, life isn't worth living. You just kill yourself. So um, yeah, they were special, unique people. And when I try and understand what they had that was special and we want to highlight it and bring it out, so like, you know, there's more love in the world. Share, you know, why they were loving and wonderful. Um, so, yeah, there, I'm, I'm capturing things that actually happened from my memory and my point of view. And uh, so like that, that list in this poem, you know, it says we pissed on the door of a closed Chinese restaurant. It, it was actually just him. So that was a change, but it didn't sound right because the rest of it's things we did. But we went, we, we used to eat at, there was a McDonald's across from uh, Clover Pool and we'd go over and get lunch. And like every day after lunch, we'd just be nauseated with this horrible, crappy food. We didn't know anything else. So we just decided, let's start going to Japanese restaurants and Chinese restaurants and trying different food. And then we really got to like, we found good food, you mm -hmm. know, as teenagers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were just really wanted some Chinese. And, I, you know, you're so stupid. Like we used to go to the state park and when it was closed, we didn't think it should be closed because it's a state park. We're state citizens. We should. Have. So we just used to drive around the sign and then my car would get towed. You know, you have, don't have full frontal lobes going when you're 17. So he got mad just one day because he decided we needed this Chinese food and we were hungry. And when they were closed, probably for some significant religious Chinese holiday, he did pull out his dick and piss on the door, which is that that's that happened. And uh, let's see, there's a list there. Oh, driving on the shoulders and wrong side of roads. We drunk drove all the time. So sometimes you just couldn't stay in your lane. That was both of us. And uh, I did. Uh, I was banging the wall one night. You know, you punch brick walls just to see if you can do it. So all my hands were bloody, all the knuckles. And so 
and I, I was waiting for him to get done with work and I went in so my hands are all bloody he's, he's like what have you been doing and he just grabs my hands and and I washed them in the sink and then uh, we did go to see David Bowie in 83 the serious moonlight tour at the carrier dome so that list is true I you know I changed one thing yeah I said we we pissed on the door of a closed Chinese restaurant because yeah. I just couldn't make it work to say he did that. And I did the, we did the other things together. And then it would have make like, I'm saying the speaker is better than Alex and I wanted them to be equal. Yeah. It just didn't work. So it's not true. It was just him that was so socially inappropriate, but you know, that's what I love about him. We wouldn't have had any socially inappropriate term. And I don't believe that now either. I, um, he is just who he was. So, yeah. But, um, and, you know, I think most of this is, there's very little invented. What he looked like. We did have this thing where, you know, they had these little six ounce, they had a Coke machine inside the place. I don't like Coke now. I don't like the flavor. But when you, this was a burning hot job. I poured chlorine and put it into, you know, four gallons fit into a plastic container and I'd fill a whole skid and, you know, I was just lifting hundreds of pounds of liquid chlorine all day long, just covered with sweat. And we would put a quarter in the machine and get a six ounce bottle of Coke, very small. And there's a little bottle opener on the side of the machine and you click it and it falls into a bucket. And uh, boy, drinking that after a hot day of work. And then we just throw them in the back seat and there'd be hundreds of them there. You couldn't sit in the back seat. And it was really nice when you're drunk driving and your car's swishing all around. The glass made this wonderful noise in the background, a combination of chimes and just hundreds of bottles of glass smashing into each other. Yeah, I love that. It was, it was a unique sound, and that yeah. was all. Yeah, would have been nice. There's no point in inventing it, I guess, because when you condense, this is condensing down. I mean, I'm sure we had a lot of horribly boring times, not that I remember them, but, you know, condensing down many years of time. This is one of the things poetry does really well. You could condense down. This was five summers together, you know, and take memories from five summers and get them in, you know, this is a page and a tenth. It's all just essentially a one page poem. And uh, you can get a lot of concentration of time and and i i love the the most powerful part of this poem for me is the confrontation with brother john and how you or the narrator handles that and just looking at him and then going back to your work and john was a wonderful older brother but i i think in retrospect you know obviously i was closeted gay at the time so and he didn't think i was but he was just worried that i would find out his brother was liking me because his brother was gay and liked me and that i might punch his brother in the head you know he was just i think trying to save his brother from another beating essentially mm -hmm. being a good older brother he wasn't against it he was just saying i don't think you know this about him yeah. before your friendship develops too far i want you to know yeah. I wrote about that in other ways too. Like that is a, that this Alex is the name of my fifth book that's unpublished. It's been in the mail three years, but it's a, it has 40. I, these are poems I wrote over 40 years about this relationship. And so um, there is a further exploration of that little vignette mm -hmm. of John coming over to me. And now that you have this book, do you, think that there are still many years of exploration to go on on the topic of Alex I've written a few more since but you know you do get written out of a topic eventually right like you get tired of reading Tolstoy or tired of listening to Beatles albums I don't know that's not the right explanation for it but no I I think like the Beatles I do really love how they went they radically changed what they were trying to do album after album and I have that desire. I'm look, I was looking at stuff last night that I wrote between. I'm starting to edit drafts that were written between 2012 and now. And I'm happy to see that they're different. Like the first two books were supposed to be one book. And that was a conscious decision to work on minimalist poetry. And Chopsticks Numbers was meant to be a book length poem. And After Lunch with Frank O'Hara was meant to explore Frank O'Hara's poetics. This Alex book is meant to be a thematic whole. 
the next big book is done too. I just started putting it out. It's totally unpublished because it's 365 pages, but it's I Need to Dream About You in six thematic sections. So that was like, for me, an epic poem. Mm -hmm. And these new ones, I don't know what is going to become of them, how they're going to pull themselves together. I'm just calling it the Computer Files Book 7. But I was very happy to see some kind of Japanese imagistic type field, some of them. Not linear, not narrative, highly imagistic. So, um, you, you've you've hinted at this a little bit about how you let the poem sit. Can you walk us through your process, going from the very beginning of free writing or brainstorming to drafting to letting it sit in your drawer? Yeah, the essence I think I figured out is you just have to have absolutely uncensored first drafts no so you can't worry about social convention or anything anything like that and you just blast away and you don't have you cannot worry if it's art or think about it being art um does that come out as as lines are they are they even poetic lines or are they they could be they don't have to be there's absolutely no rules and uh and, you know, so what I did learn over the years, and it got suggested to me by Linda Wagner, who's now Linda Wagner Martin, and she's a, a great scholar. I mean, she's one of the great literary theorists in the world, has written over 40 books, and Sylvia Plath and Hemingway. And, well, if she wrote the first doctoral dissertation on William Carlos Williams, she met him a few months before he died. You know, she took the she had sent the dissertation to, Williams and Flossie and Flossie read it to him. He'd had five strokes at that stage and they invited her to dinner and we're still friends. You know, I'm, I studied with her 40 years ago and she sent me those photos of that meeting. This is so sweet. But, uh, and I actually was taking an independent study with her and, and, you know, I was studying Williams and I'm supposed to write papers. And I said, you know, Linda, we didn't call them Professor Wagner or anything. Do you, could I just do poems and you could talk to me about my poems? And she said, of course, it's Williams. <laughs> He's a poet. And, uh, and so I'd bring in my drafts. And you know, when you write a poem, in, in order to sit down and write, and you know, you might spend three to seven hours, you're so, you, 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 you have to enjoy it. You have to think it's good. When the reality is a lot of it totally sucks. So you know, and I used to try and edit things after I wrote them. And so I was taking these poems and she'd give me comments and I'd come back and she just said, I think you're destroying your own poetry, that you are removing things because you're embarrassed about the content and what you're changing has nothing to do with strong or weak writing, good or bad writing, and you're destroying your poems. And so that sunk in later. It took me about 12 years for that to sink in. And now I realize if I let it, in order to be in the flush of writing, you have to be having fun. But that's not the critical mind needed to turn it into art. But if you look at it five years later, you, I don't even remember writing it. So, and it's very easy to edit. And you, I would waste all this time. It's impossible for me to edit the things. I wrote two, I call them poem attempts this weekend, one about Al Kaline, the right fielder for the Detroit Tigers. What in the hell was the other one about? Oh, it was about a poetry reading Diane Wachowski set up for me in my late 20s. Um, it's, it's not possible to edit them now. Um, a waste of time. Just write new things. Plus, I have 500 things from eight years ago I can edit now. So, um, But also, like, um, you know, I was trying to be straight in the closet. This is true love. My girlfriend, Rose, we're still friends. She lives in Long Beach. Hi, Rose, if you're listening. We have lunch every year for the last 40 years. And... uh. Um, so she dumped me. It was a very smart move. Straight women don't need to try and uh, have a long-term romantic relationship with a gay man. And so I'm all upset that I'm dumped, you know, from my first true love is ruined. So I go to Wachowski's office hours and I go, how do I write about this? And she just took a pause and she goes, wait 10 years. And, uh, so of course I wrote a whole bunch of poems about Rose for the rest of that quarter and they all sucked. I mean, they're just horrible, but you know, so anyway, the process, do whatever you have to be unfettered. You have to be Whitman gives all sorts of direction on this and leaves of grass. 
unfettered. And then my, I, I don't know any poet that their unfettered work is good. People used to think Ginsburg just, I've seen the best minds of my generation, you know, that they just knocked that off because it does read so smoothly. And um, Howell is deeply edited. He worked on it a lot. I don't know one poet that their great poem was just knocked out. Takes a lot of work. So it has to be gone. My writing has to be gone at with a critical eye later because so much of it's just crud. I mean, when you're, you're ignoring things, you put a figure of speech in, you put a cliche in, you put overused images, hackneyed language. I mean, there's a lot of things you learn to do and not do to find the unique language. I mean, you're really supposed to be doing something that's never been done and not being derivative. So in the early stages, you get a lot of horrible writing in there. But I think it's too bad that so many writers stop writing because they're upset with their horrible writing. I mean, it's essential to do horrible writing. You can't write without it. You have to embrace it. Or like Frank O'Hara, who was, I absolutely love. But I love 74 of his poems. He probably wrote 600. I don't think he's a lesser poet because of those um, other 500 that I don't think are great pieces of art. I think that was the necessary field he had to create to do his art. So, But keep us going. I, I think when you're, when you're talking about how long you let these poem drafts sit, um, it really, it literally is years. Right. right. Yeah. Cause I'm, if I look at Al Kaline next week, I remember writing it and how, what, what I thought was cute about it and fun. You can't have any of that. That flush of writing has to be gone for me. And you think you're able to tap back into the emotional source that the poem came from, or do you not? No need question. To? Oh yeah. I can, this is the essence. This is the, this is the art and this is the crap that has to be excised. No question. I mean, and uh, you have to be, that was part of Linda's thing. You have to be very gentle with this. You know, you, you're taking out stuff because she was saying you're embarrassed about the content and that is not a reason and be gentle. You have to be very gentle because if you're really, you know, there's, a, you're exposing yourself deeply in a certain ways about art. And, um, yeah. You have to be careful with that. Like you'd be careful with a love relationship, right? You know, mm. you nurture it and try not to destroy it. And it's the same thing with art that you're creating. I think this is along the same lines. I'm not sure if you agree, but uh, your mode of learning is also a very long-term investment. It's it's immersive, right? So can you tell us, for example, you decide that you like the writing of Proust or Tolstoy. Uh, tell us, Tell us how you get into that once you once you decide that there's a a writer worth studying yeah so um you know i never have liked the survey type of studying and or people that they're trying to understand everything uh, anyway it's never worked for me so i don't know i started this about 25 years ago but if I find somebody I get fascinated and I just focus on, so I have no broad knowledge about poetry, absolutely nothing. I would be a useless teacher of a survey course, but I have like deep knowledge of a few artists. And uh, so if I find someone that interests me, like Frank O'Hara, I'll spend, I spent three years on Frank O'Hara. Now, you know, so I would read everything he wrote many times and then I would read all the biographies, all the theory, all the articles, and reread him, and just go until I'm exhausted. And I feel like, and then, you know, read him as a writer, like I want to understand what he's doing. And it's not always breaking down the poems. I mean, it's not breaking them into pieces. But uh, it just goes until it naturally happens. So I spent three years with O'Hare and three years with Tolstoy and three years with Proust and two and a half years with James Wright. And, um, and I'm always reading other things in there. So during those 40 years, like I've read and studied everything Barbara Drake's written and everything Diane Wachowski's written very seriously. So I could speak articulately about Barbara Drake's poetry. And if you're listening to this, get her new book, 
The Road to Lilac Hill from Windfall Press in Oregon. And Diane Wachowski's new book is Lady of Light and Hinga Press. I think they're in Florida. But uh, yeah, so that's just the kind of study I like. I'm, on, I'm just about done with Whitman. I've been on Whitman about two and a half years. I read Whitman when I was a kid, 18. Couldn't make nothing of it. And now I understand his place in the cosmos of American poetry and how important he is to where I am. And uh, I have about, I'm looking at my bookshelf. I have about eight more books on Whitman to read, which I will be primarily reading until they're done. And um, I wrote an essay on him. I've made my selection of Leaves of Grass that I think is his best poetry. Because he, I know, like all of us, we write some horrible stuff. I mean, his lists were just atrocious and boring, but absolutely necessary for what he was trying to do with his sense of democracy and understanding the vastness of the United States and the world. Um, so I just, I like it better. I'd rather learn a lot about a few things than a little about a lot of things. And, you know, at 60, my friend Bernie says I've been dying for 40 years. <laughs> There's certainly more behind me than ahead. I mean, if I have 10 years, I'm lucky. That's only like going to be three more artists I have time to study. And there's so many. I mean, I would like to study. There's a hundred more that would be worth an in-depth study. I'm trying to think of what I want to do after Whitman. I've, I have a Stafford, Gray Wolf has um, a new one selected from 95. And I've been going to, because I know Stafford and appreciate him, but I don't know him deeply. And I've been slowly going through that book and finding some beautiful poems. But you're but still... I don't know what's after. You're still in the Whitman phase right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it, it had kind of, I can see it had exhausted itself because I took a break to read about 10, 15 other books. And uh, I read a lot of journals, poetry journals, <laughs> literary journals. And... So you're saying your mind is just, it just gets to a place where it's ready to move on yeah. to something else. Well, I mean, there you've read everything that's been written. You studied you know, yeah, you get tired of it, right? I mean, I go times where I don't want to hear the White Album for a couple of years, bro. Will you read for us a couple more of your poems? Yep. Which ones do you want uh, to hear? Why don't you pick? All right. I'm going to pick one that you didn't pick. Thank you. It's called You Ever. You ever get together with a group of fellow poets and feel we're the biggest group of losers in town? <laughs> And uh, there's another really short one. Um, that just came out this week in San Francisco in the racket. Um, let me see. I don't think I printed it. This is in one of the sections of that big book that are called Bagatelles. Um, people, enter my apartment, comment on the lack of clutter. That's the first poem in the new racket out of San Francisco. I'm the editor. I love he was so happy with it. He said he couldn't get it out of his head. Well, I mean, the poems you you picked some poems for me to read, which I think are good poems, but they were kind of lacking in humor. And I do want poetry to be, have a good deal of silliness in them. I'll do serious things. And I love Ron Padgett's poetry and um silliness absurd i love the three stooges i love the big lebowski i mean comedy is so important and poetry can just be so overwrought and oh we're talking about death and heartbreak all the time it just sucks so i like to have a lot of lightheartedness some fun and goofiness and irreverence it's silly and stupid like monty python i mean very well written comedy but they also like to just fucking blow up things i mean if they could get some tnt or some napalm and light things on fire they thought that was fucking hilarious and then to put that with the literary side of their beautiful writing this and i want that in the poetry too i just don't i do not want poetry to be all heavy and or and that was the big exploration in that last book of um, after lunch with Frank O'Hare. I mean, he wrote lunch poems, so these are after lunch poems and after O'Hare is dead. Tell us more about these bagatelles that you just mentioned. So, you know, um, Beethoven wrote bagatelles. I, I set my alarm in the morning to a classical music station so I don't have to hear a buzz. And, you know, every 
37 days or so, I wake up to some piece like, oh, love that. I got to find it. Now it's so good with the internet. You just go on. It's, uh, I forget the name of the classical music station in LA, but you just Google it and you, your alarm went off at seven and you see what was playing at seven. And it was a bagatelle, which I didn't know what they were. They're little, little tiny pieces Beethoven wrote. And then they have a CD right there too, linked to it. So I bought it. It was a uh, Stephen Osborne. He's a, a virtuoso pianist. He lives in Scotland. And uh, Beethoven wrote these because he had fun with them and they were just fun, quirky little short pieces, but he also wrote them. He was commissioned to write them to have something interesting for uh, students to play. And he was commissioned and given an advance. And then when he sent the bagatelles to the first publisher, I think in Vienna, they just said, well, these are horrible. I can't believe they were written by Beethoven. I can't believe you wrote them. I, I hired three pianists to play them just to, so I could make sure I was hearing the right thing. And they're just horrible. And I'd rather you keep the advance and I'm not going to publish them. I'd just rather lose the money. They're so bad. And anyway, I just love them and they're short and quirky and uh, he didn't write a lot about them that I know I'm not a Beethoven scholar. But anyway, so I, this is just one of the sections of this book are bagatelles and they are very short, quirky. I love the bagatelles. I, this is, I, and I wrote to Stephen Osborne in Scotland and we had a correspondence so I could ask him a lot of questions. This is what I like to find the experts. You know, I had some letters with Marjorie Perloff who wrote the definitive um, criticism on Frank O'Hara. In fact, she made him famous. I mean, he was an unknown poet until Poet Among Painters in the early 70s. And um, Jerome Loving, Jerry Loving, is the, uh, I think, the definitive biographer of Whitman. And, um, he's retired, lives in Texas, and has been very nice of answering my emails. And But so did um, Stephen Osborne about Beethoven, because I don't know a lot about classical music. But I've listened to them hundreds of times, and but I want to see them performed. I had a guy hired to perform them, but everything got shut down with COVID. Hmm. I cannot wait to sit in front of all the bagatelles. And I doubt it's not going to take more than an hour to play them all. I want to watch them played. And you know, the hearing a piano played when you're in the presence, how you know you can feel the sound vibrations in your chest, and it's way better than just a CD. So I won't, cannot wait to have that experience. But they're, some of them are deeply moving and emotional, but they're just funny and light and silly, a lot of them. And, uh, and just showing off your just massive talent. Uh, so, But, I, you know, I met Ron Padgett very early on at Michigan State and I've been reading his stuff since those early books, Triangles in the Afternoon and Tazur L'Amour and... Um, you know, more recent books like uh, How to Be Perfect. And then his collected just won the LA Times Book Review Prize a couple of years ago. But it's nice to get the original little books because they're beautifully thematic, but just um, blissful silliness like Monty Python. I mean, they can get it all the deep issues of society for their humor. It's just not blowing up things. And that's to me essential in art. And I want that in my poetry and I try to be as stupid and silly as possible whenever I can, whenever I feel like it. Want to read us a couple more? Bagatelles? Or whatever just the one, like. some of the ones you picked? Whatever you like. Let's see if this one, I don't know if you picked this one. I printed out ones you asked me to. Alex and me at the beach as teenagers. Tapped him on the shoulder and handed him my chewed grape gum. He didn't smile, looked in my eyes, took gum out of his mouth, and we swapped. His was cinnamon. It was the only way we could kiss. And then this says summer 1976. That was a workaround for life in the closet. You know, that was, I'll read the Ayaz Marhoni and Mahmoud Asgiri, which is a horror. So this was two teenagers that couldn't be out in the seventies without, you know, just a constant beat down and maybe getting thrown out of your home. You just didn't know what was going to happen. And it was a psychiatric illness then. I mean, when I, when I grew up in, in Drayton Plains, Michigan, 
there were two insane asylums in Michigan, the Eastern Michigan Asylum for the Insane in Pontiac, and then the Northern Michigan Asylum for the Insane in uh, Traverse City. And the one in Pontiac is was the most spectacular piece of architecture ever constructed in Michigan. Constructed over many years, they made all the bricks there from natural materials. All the wood is from the, the trees of the time, the white oaks, which are nearly extinct, and white pine. and. Uh, it was just many, many acres. It was huge Victorian spires and creepy as hell. And they had to tear it down because Pontiac imploded when Pontiac Motors bellied up. And I cannot believe the state didn't preserve it. They preserved the one in Traverse City and it's being turned into condos and businesses, but it was much less ornate than the Pasadena one. But anyway, all the kids, you know, none of us really talked about being gay, you know. I played sports. When I didn't make a team, I'd go to drama club and do lights and build sets. And um, you know, I'm friends with all those guys now, and there were a lot of gay kids there, but you were in the closet. And I said to them, did you think if you came out and someone found out, they would send you to the insane asylum for shock treatments? Everyone said yes. I mean, that was, it was a mental illness. It was a perversion. It was horrible. And uh, that was the treatment. You got strapped down in electroshock. That was one of them. And there's a scholar at Oakland University that wrote a beautiful book on the architectural history of that insane asylum that's now gone. And I asked him about the shock treatments and he said he'd heard it, but that uh, his book, he did not do research into the treatments. I'm trying to encourage him to do that. But anyway, so that, you know, this is the environment that Alex and I had this, you know, friendship that, uh, couldn't go very far because of all the strictures but still you know so you find a way to work around you can't kiss in public you can share gum now this is just from 2005 um ayaz marhoni and mahmoud esgiri the iranian government held a public execution to murder gay lovers mahmoud esgiri age 16 and ayaz marhoni age 18 they were arrested at 14 and 16 tortured two years and forced to take the confession that they were in love. Handcuffed together before their public execution, photographs show them crying as a microphone is held in front of their faces. Instead of building gallows that snap the neck instantly, they were hoisted slowly, nooses around their necks, and strangled to death over 20 minutes. Mahmoud jerked so much, one of his sandals came off. And the note is they were publicly executed at El Dalat, which is Justice Square in Masad, northern Iran, on July 19th, 20, 2005, 15 years ago. Mm. And there are some pic pictures of the execution. I mean, and that was, you know, 30 years after. And that is one of the sections in I Need to Dream About You is called Ayaz Marhoni and Mahmoud Askiri. And it's just looking at the life for gay teenagers at different parts of the world at different times. And that's a fascination for Whitman. I mean, obviously he's totally gay. Anyone that thinks he isn't doesn't know how to read poetry and doesn't know how to study someone's life. But uh, um, I mean, the 19th century was brutal toward gays and he couldn't come out to the point. I mean, he did come out in the poetry in the beginning, but he even the pressure of just being beat on for 30 years and being fired from government jobs for leaves of grass and the sexual gay components. You know, he had a job at the Department of the Interior, Department of State. As soon as they found out he wrote leaves of grass, he's out the door. He was changing pronouns in his poetry at the, you know, he was ruining some of his poetry at the end of his life and had to come up with this absurd story that he had a mistress in New Orleans when he was younger and he fathered several illegitimate kids and, grandkids and uh that's that for alex hanfler my dreams are lies because i lie every day and that has affected my dreams um it's about being in the closet i mean you have to lie for survival but any kind of lying has negative repercussions for your personality so um sometimes you have to so anyway that section of i need to dream about you has it would flip around between 76 and 05 and some teenagers are can live peacefully open gay lives in some parts of the world and some are still getting murdered. I mean, there's, there's concentration camps for 
gay children, teens and men in Chechnya, that southern province of Russia. Uh, and, you know, I it makes me sick. I, I witness a few of these things when they're on YouTube. But, I mean, you watched ISIS um, throwing gays off buildings. Tie their hands behind their back, give them a big hug and a kiss on the cheek, and then, sorry, I mean, you can't be part of this society because this is evil saw a lot of those executions and this these these executions of these two children yeah it was in the press a bit in 05 but there was anderson cooper ran a a short expose on it in 2005 which i appreciated but they've mostly been forgotten so try not to there's your memory coming back, right? Try and preserve some things, good and bad, mm-hmm. so they're not forgotten. Yeah. Craig, thank you very much for this conversation. Good to talk to you. The Artist Statement is brought to you by the Granham Foundation. Check us out at granumfoundation.org. G-R-A-N-U-M foundation.org. <laughs>